following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. A lot of the time, I think when, when we read our Bibles, if we read our Bibles, we tend to read them in a very fragmented way. So you kind of read a verse here and a verse there, and maybe you've got a memory verse that you really like, and maybe you know the story of David and Goliath, or you know one of Jesus' parables, and we've got these bits that we latch onto, and we might know them and appreciate them, but we sometimes have a hard time knowing exactly how all these bits come together and form one big jigsaw puzzle. And there is nothing more valuable in our Christian lives than understanding the big overall story of the Bible. So what I want to do this morning is step back, and I just want to tell you that story. I want to tell you the overall story of the Bible from beginning to end, because there is one story. I know there's lots of little stories in the Bible as well, but there is one overall narrative from Genesis to Revelation that holds the whole thing together. So I want to step back and look at that whole story this morning, and I thought that I'd set myself a challenge. I want to see if we can get through the whole story in 30 minutes, all right? And just to, just to keep myself accountable here, I've even got a countdown clock. All right, so we're going we're gonna to count down from 30, and we're going to see if we can just get from beginning to end, all right, and, and just see how we go. So are we, are we okay with this? All right, you can do this in church. We're right with that? Okay, all right. So we're going to count it down from five, all right? Here we go. Ready? Five, four, three, two, one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the first, that is the first verse of the Bible, right? Genesis 1, 1. So... The biblical story starts with God. And this God that we meet is the God who is three in one. He is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And of course, there's a story before the story. God has existed from all eternity as three in one. He's existed in this beautiful community of love and joy and freedom and blessing within himself before he ever created anything. But out of the overflow of who God is, out of His being, out of the love within the being of God, He determines to create. He decides to create a life that can share in His love. He wants to share His love with others, with, with His creatures. And so God determines to create. And so the first two chapters of the Bible are the story of creation, the story of God bringing into being everything that we see, creating everything that exists. So God creates, he creates galaxies and stars and planets and he breathes out the entire cosmos and he focuses on this one little planet that we live on and he starts separating out light from darkness and earth from sea and sky from land and then he starts filling this earth with all sorts of things, all sorts of life and he's, and he's putting plant life in place and he's putting animal life there and then he gets to the sixth day of creation and he creates the pinnacle of his creative work, human beings, creates man and woman, and he creates them in his image. And that means that God creates Adam and Eve to reflect him, to image him, which means that they're created for relationship with him. And it means they're created for relationship with one another. It's part of the image of God as well, that we are hardwired to be relational beings. So God creates these, these human creatures. And, and, and you can tell in the biblical story that these, these human beings God's created, they're full of glory and they're full of honor. This is not just some lowly creature, but that these are human beings that God loves and He wants to have relationship with. 
And so he places them in a garden and he puts them in this web of relationships that for a while are all working as they're intended to work. Human beings are in perfect relationship with God. They have healthy relationship with self. They have positive relationships, functional relationships with one another. And they even have productive relationships with the land, with the earth itself. For a while, this is all working well. This is all working good, just as it's been created to work. But it doesn't take long before everything comes off the rails and everything falls apart in Genesis chapter 3. You only get two good chapters and then you get the bad. So Genesis chapter 3, we call this the fall. Right, that's the name we give it. The word's not there, but the fall is, is human beings. They were only given one rule, one rule in the garden. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's the one tree they went and ate from. And they took and they ate and nothing was ever the same. At that moment, sin enters into the human experience. And that was a lot more than just people eating fruit from a tree. So what that represented was human beings seeking to subvert their entire relationship with God. This was the first act where human beings decide to live in a self-determined way rather than a God-determined way. That they decide we're going to make the rules, we'll be in charge, we'll be the captains of our own fate and the masters of our own destiny. Thank you very much. Human beings decide to live autonomously and independently from God in this self-determined way, an egocentric way rather than a theocentric, God-centered way. And that has devastating effects for every dimension of, of hum humanity. Human beings' relationship with God is fractured. It's a huge fracture line now between humanity and God, separated because of the sin they commit. It also affects human beings' relationship with themselves. Their own mental and emotional health is damaged and distorted by sin. Shame enters into the human experience. Guilt enters into the human experience. Adam and Eve realize they're naked. They feel ashamed. So now human beings are damaged internally. Their own emotions and their own minds have become corrupted. It's sin starts to affect human relationships with one another. There's a breakdown. You just get to Genesis 4 and you have the first murder in the Bible, Cain and Abel, the first homicide. And then this ripples out and out and out and out and out. Genesis 3 through 11 is just the sorry story of sin rippling out to affect every dimension of humanity and the entire earth. You get to Genesis 6 and you've got the entire world full of wickedness in the days of Noah. You get to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, and you've got humanity arrogantly trying to build this tower to heaven to try and be like God. God scatters them and judges them and sends them away. And really Genesis 11 is this low point where you see, boy, human beings have already drifted so far from where they were in the garden. They've already just become so filled with sin and iniquity. And Genesis 1 and 2 already seem like a long time ago. But then we turn a corner and we get to good news. You come to Genesis 12 and there is this hopeful note in the Old Testament. And the hope begins with this ordinary guy, Abram. And God appears to Abram one clear, cloudless night. And he says, Abraham, look at the stars. That's how many descendants you will have. Look at the sand on the seashore. So great will your descendants be. God promises Abraham a family, promises him descendants. He promises him blessing. He promises them that through him, all the nations of the earth will eventually be blessed, that God's blessing will extend through Abraham and his family, his children, his children, his children. 
and into all nations of the earth. And really, that promise to, to Abraham in Genesis 12, that sets the program for the whole rest of the biblical story. You could see the rest of the Bible as fulfilling those promises God made to Abraham in Genesis 12, that all nations would eventually be blessed through him and through his descendants. Well, Abraham didn't see much of that in his own life. He lived a very ordinary life. He walked through the land of Canaan, but he never owned it. Uh, he had a son named Isaac, who was fairly deceitful at times. Uh, he had a son, Jacob, who was an absolute ratbag. Uh, Jacob, amazingly, had his name changed to Israel, and he becomes the father of 12 sons who become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And through a series of events in the life of Joseph, that family moves from Canaan to Egypt, which is the base for the next several hundred years for God's family. So this family of Jacob, this family ultimately of Abraham's now living in Egypt. They become a bigger and a bigger family. They keep multiplying. They become this very populous people within, within Egypt. So much so that the ruling Pharaoh starts to get quite intimidated by this huge clan, which is now virtually a people in its own right. And so Pharaoh forces the Hebrew people, the Jacob family, into slavery, forces them into servitude, and they become slaves in Egypt for 400 years. After 400 years, they cry out to God for a deliverer. God raises up who? Moses. Yes, Moses comes. Yeah, stay awake. Moses comes to the scene. He's the deliverer. He's the one who appears before Pharaoh to say, let my people go. Aaron is with him. Through an incredible series of dramatic events, the plagues of Egypt, God leads his people out of Egypt and he leads them eventually into the promised land. Before you get to that, of course, God leads them through the Red Sea. An amazing miracle of God in the Old Testament. Really, the, the major act of redemption in the Old Testament is the parting of the Red Sea. God's significant saving act of His people in the Old Testament is the, is the Exodus, the Red Sea. And it foreshadows so much of what will come with Jesus in the New Testament. So God leads His people out through the Red Sea, through the desert, to Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, He enters into a covenant with the nation of Israel. That's really where God binds himself to the nation of Israel. And he says, these people are mine. That's where Israel becomes a nation, not just a big family. Now they're a nation. And God says, I, I am with you and you are my people and I'm going to be your God. And he makes these promises to them. He enters into a covenant, like a contract with them. This is where he reveals himself to them in, in fire and cloud. And he gives them his law. The foundation of that law is the 10 commandments. We read those in Exodus chapter 20, but those are just 10 of the next 603 that come along, which form the entire law that God gives to his people. And that law is for the life of Israel to live as the people of God eventually in their own land. So Israel received the law. They carry on in the wilderness. They have to wander through the desert for 40 years because of their own rebellion and, and sin. But eventually they get to the land of Canaan, this land that God had promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis. And now fulfilled as Israel comes into the land. And they come into Israel under Joshua. That's where Joshua comes in, military leader, leads Israel in this huge conquest of the promised land, drive out all these other people groups. By the time the dust settles, it's quite clear that not everybody's been driven out. There's still various little Canaanite tribes there, and that becomes part of the problem because Israel now lives in its own land, the land of Canaan. They've in some ways become a self-sufficient people, but this is where things begin to decline because what should be a picture of a people now living under God in their own land becomes a people drifting from God, 
in their own land and becoming more and more unfaithful and really becoming more and more like the nations around them. That's what's happening. Sometimes this is called the Canaanizing of the Israelites. They just become like the Canaanites and they worship the gods of the Canaanites and they engage in all the practices of these nations around them. And here comes the cycle of the Judges, the book of Judges, where Israel becomes unfaithful to God. So God hands them over to some other nation to destroy them. And then they cry out to God for deliverance. And so he sends them a judge and they get their freedom back. And then they drift back into unfaithfulness again. Round and round it goes. Every cycle is more depressing than the one before it. It's not a particularly happy book, but that's life in the land for Israel. Eventually, Israel gets to the point of saying to God, we want a king. We want to be like the nations around us. We want a king. And God says, you don't need a king. But Israel said, we really want a king. And so God gives them a king. He gives them King Saul. Very mixed bag of a king. Starts well, ends badly. After Saul comes David, the great king of Israel. Still a very sinful, broken man, but the great king, a man after God's own heart. And God makes these amazing promises to David that one of his sons, one of his descendants will sit on his throne and his kingdom will know no end and the government will be on his shoulders and he'll be called wonderful counselor, everlasting God, so on, so on. You remember the words from Christmas? And so God makes these promises to David. And so that sets in motion some prophecies that will eventually be fulfilled. Well, David's son Solomon then takes the throne. After Solomon comes Rehoboam, and he was the most incompetent king you can imagine, this guy. We don't hear much about him, but he was completely useless, so useless that he managed to split the, the kingdom in half, split Israel into two nations. So the northern part becomes, keeps the name Israel, that's now made up of 10 of the tribes. The southern part keeps the name Judah, and that's made up of just two of the tribes, Judah and Benjamin. They have their capital in Jerusalem. Israel's capital is Samaria. And from then on, these two nations hate each other. And there's just this sad civil war that goes on over the next several hundred years between these two nations that were supposed to be one nation and were supposed to be the people of God, and they've now been torn apart. It's a pretty sorry situation. So you have now these two parallel lines of kings Going through the story, you have the kings of the north and the kings of the south, mostly a bunch of evil kings with the occasional bright light like Asa, Josiah, but mainly evil kings. And through this time, through the time of the kings, God begins to raise up prophets, people of God who speak the word of God to Israel, to Judah, calling them back, calling them back to faithfulness, calling them back to obedience and, and warning that if they don't, remain faithful to God. If they don't come back to him, judgment will follow. And sure enough, eventually Israel's decline gets so bad that the, the, the hammer of judgment falls and we have the exile. God sends his people into captivity for 70 years in Babylon, the nation of Judah, at least. Israel just gets wiped out, but Judah gets taken into captivity in Babylon. And there they learn that even in exile, even while they're away from their land and they're away from the temple, and they, they, they feel like they're away from God, but they learn even in exile, in the strange situation of exile, God is still with them. And God is still working. And God begins using significant Israelites in that context of exile. People like Daniel, who become an advisor to the king. People like Esther, who become queen of the empire. And the prophets begin to speak of hope on the other side of exile. They begin to speak of hope beyond judgment. And sure enough, after 70 years... The political winds change and the Israelites are allowed back into their land again. And under people like Zerubbabel and Nehemiah comes along and Ezra comes along later, people rebuild the city of Jerusalem 
They rebuild the walls of the city. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild their homes. And they again are the people of God in their own land. But as you get to this, this point of the Israelites coming back from exile, it feels a bit anticlimactic. The Israelites are back in their land, but they're still an occupied people. They've still got these Persians ruling over them. There's no king in Israel. The royal line has died out. And the glory of God is no longer filling the temple. So the Israelites start wondering, maybe God is still planning to do something new. Maybe there's a, there's a greater a greater work, a greater returning from exile that God is going to bring about. Maybe God's got something up his sleeve that he's yet to do. And that is the note of, of anticipation that the Old Testament ends on. That's the note of suspense that the Old Testament ends on. It's a story in search of an ending when you get to the end of the Old Testament, wondering how is God going to fulfill these promises to Abraham through this motley crew called Israel? So then between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have that blank bit of paper in your Bible. And that is worth 400 years. So 400 years happened in there. You might just want to write that on that bit of paper. Lots happened, but God was silent during that time in the sense that he didn't give revelation. He didn't give fresh revelation. But we come to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And suddenly you get the sense that God is doing something new. God really did have a new trick up his sleeve. And here's the ending that we've all been waiting for. You have the arrival of Jesus of Nazareth. When you think about Jesus, I think we often imagine that Jesus could have just dropped out of heaven any time, any place. He just dropped down to earth to die for our sins on the cross and then get resurrected and ascend back to heaven. But I'm hoping you can see that Jesus steps into the flow of a story. He very much comes into a story that's already had thousands of years in the making. And it will go on for millennia after him. So he is the one who brings the story to its fulfillment, brings it to its climax. And then everything after Jesus flows out from that. He, his life, death, resurrection sits at the very center, at the very heart of the story. Jesus was born in awful circumstances, in a barn surrounded by animals to a couple of teenagers who didn't have a clue what they were doing. He spent the first year of his life as a refugee in Egypt. And then he grew up in relative obscurity in a village called Nazareth, probably working in his, in his father's trade business. He gets to about 30 years old. He comes out into the wilderness and he's baptized by John the Baptist. And then he starts an itinerant preaching and teaching ministry. He's, he's basically a rabbi, functioning as a rabbi within the, the northern parts of Israel. And Jesus stands up one day in a synagogue in Nazareth, and he pulls out Isaiah and he says, he quotes from Isaiah and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor and to proclaim release for the prisoners and to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he says, This scripture has been fulfilled today in your hearing. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who Isaiah talked about. I'm the one all the way back then, hundreds of years ago. I'm the one who was prophesied about. All the go right back to Abraham, go right back to David. This is the one whom the scriptures were always pointing towards, the son of David, the true son, descendant of Abraham, the one who would come and fulfill Israel's story and make everything new, the Messiah, the king. He's the king of Israel, the king of the whole world. And Jesus is not just a human king. He's not just flesh and blood. 
when you look at the promises of kingship in the Old Testament, there's a sense that God himself will come as king. God says, I will come, I will rule over you, I will shepherd my people Israel. So as Jesus comes, he is the very living embodiment of God himself. Not just a man, Jesus is also fully God and he comes fully God, fully man to seek and to save the lost, to save humanity, to save the entire world. So much of Jesus' life and teachings was about the kingdom of God. He went around talking about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom really just looks like God undoing everything that sin has touched. You think about everything that went wrong back in Genesis 3. Jesus comes along. He starts talking about and demonstrating the ways. All of this is now being unwound. It's being healed. God is redeeming and renewing his broken, damaged world. Human relationships with God are being restored Human relationships within themselves, people's own relationship with self, is being restored and being healed. He's casting demons out of people. He's healing the sick. He's raising Lazarus from the dead. People's relationships with one another are being restored and being cleansed. Jesus is crossing all sorts of social taboos. He's refusing to, to treat people as outcasts and treat people as unclean as they were treated in this culture. He refuses that. He crosses every social line that he's not supposed to cross and he welcomes people in because he's full of love and grace and he's showing what the kingdom of God looks like in action. Well, not everybody liked that. Not everybody liked hearing about Jesus' version of the kingdom of God. And in particular, this was a threat to the ruling authorities and powers within Israel at the time who, who liked their own way of doing things. Thank you very much, particularly the Pharisees. So they hatch a plan to destroy Jesus. They have him brought up on, on bogus charges. They arrest him. They put him through trial. They hand him over to the Roman authorities. He's, he's tried kind of by Pilate, the governor. And eventually Pilate hands him over to be executed through the Roman method of execution, which was crucifixion. And so Jesus hangs there bleeding and dying and does die on a Roman cross. And from a human perspective, it was an absolute travesty of justice. There has not been a greater miscarriage of justice in human history than the death of Jesus Christ. But from a divine perspective, from God's perspective, he had a plan all along, and God knew exactly what would happen and exactly what he was doing. And on the cross, Jesus bore all the sin of all humanity, all of our brokenness, all of our failure, all of our inability to be the human creatures God has created us to be. Jesus bore that in his body and he carried it to the grave so we wouldn't have to carry it and we wouldn't have to pay the consequence of it. And the story didn't end there. Then on the third day, Jesus was crucified on a Friday. On the Sunday, Jesus is raised from the dead, physically, bodily, raised from the dead. It vindicates exactly who he was. He truly is the Son of God. Only the Son of God can do this. It shows that all Jesus, what he had said and done was true. And as Jesus is raised from the dead, here is the kingdom of God now walking out of the grave with him. Here is God's new creation now taking shape. On earth, it begins with this one resurrected man who comes as the first fruits of all who will be raised from the dead. So Jesus dies and is raised, and then he spends 40 days with his disciples. He's preparing them now. He's helping them understand what will happen after he leaves, not that they really get it. And then eventually he takes them up on a mountain and he gives them a final commissioning to go and preach the gospel to all nations before finally Jesus ascends in the clouds. And the angels say to the disciples, He'll come back just as you saw him leave. And so Jesus' disciples hang around there, not sure what on earth to do. 
They wait in Jerusalem for a while because Jesus had said to them, you're going to receive power and then you're going to be my witnesses. So as they're sitting there one day worshiping in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is given. The Holy Spirit comes upon them in a mighty way. The rushing wind fills the room. The tongues of fire descend on the disciples. The promises of Ezekiel and others come true. And the disciples are filled with the Spirit of God as it was promised to them. Of course, the Holy Spirit has always been part of the biblical story. Right back to creation. But now the Spirit comes upon Jesus' followers in a permanent way, in an abiding way, to rest upon them and fill them individually. And fill them as a community. And that's what they become. Then this is the birth of the church. As soon as the day of Pentecost happens, suddenly you've got 3,000 people give their lives to Jesus, filled with the Spirit, instant church. And they begin worshiping together as a church. The church is born in Jerusalem in the first century. And these little gatherings of believers met in houses and they did pretty much what we're doing today, worshiping hearing God's word preached by the apostles, taking the Lord's Supper, enjoying fellowship together, and the church was born. We carry on that tradition today. And this church, from the very beginning, it always had that sense that it was on a mission. It wasn't just about a bunch of people sitting around worshiping God. We're going somewhere. God's doing something. There's good news to share with the world. The church had this movement towards, because they remembered the promises to Abraham, that that God would say to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and eventually my blessing will come to all nations. So one way or another, the blessing's got to get to the nations. So the church starts taking the good news and the love of Jesus out to the nations. And you have people like Philip the Evangelist in the book of Acts, has a chat with an Ethiopian. Next thing, the Ethiopian gives his life to Jesus and he's off back to Africa to tell his own people about Jesus. Fantastic. You have people like Paul. Paul's a very significant figure in the book of Acts. He was a total opponent of the church, hated Christians, killed Christians, and his life was radically changed on the Damascus Road. He was commissioned to take the gospel beyond the nation of Israel into the broader world, the broader Greco-Roman world, the world of the Gentiles. And that's exactly what Paul does. Much of the book of Acts is Paul's journeys. He has a bit of a trip up through what we now call Turkey. He jumps over, has a bit of a trip around Greece. He eventually gets to Italy, not on his own dime, but because he's a prisoner of Rome. And he gets there as a Roman prisoner in chains. But eventually, probably, he's released at his first trial and he has some more freedom to go around Italy and out out into Europe, proclaiming the gospel, talking about Jesus. Paul probably got as far as Spain. Most people think that was the extent of his missionary journeys. And he leaves all of these churches that are established. And Paul's then corresponding with these churches. A lot of the, the documents, books in your New Testament are letters that Paul and Peter and John and Jude and others wrote to churches and groups of Christians in those New Testament times in the first century to encourage these newly formed churches, to encourage them in their faith, to encourage them in their internal strife, to encourage them to be part of this mission that was going on, to grow them in their faith. Paul couldn't just you know, send text messages. He's having to write letters. They'd sometimes take months to get there, but this is the way that it worked. And even after Paul's ministry finishes... Others come along behind him. You have second-generation Christians, Timothy, Priscilla, Aquila, Barnabas. And these guys and girls are taking the gospel on. And they're moving out through the nations. So some take the gospel and the movement goes up through Europe. Others are going down into Africa. People like Thomas, the tradition has it, go over into India, and right down through Asia. And the movement keeps spreading. 
and the story keeps going. And even after the Bible finished being written, I mean, it was written by about 90 AD, but the story carries on. And men and women have continued to take the good news and take the love of Jesus out into the nations in fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, down to someone like Samuel Marsden, who comes from Britain to Australia to New Zealand, and then in 1814 preaches the gospel for the first time in Oihi Bay. And so the gospel comes to our shores. And the story continues in our day, in our land. I want you to see we're part of the same story. It's the same story the Bible has been telling all along. And here's the final thing, if I can do it in three minutes and 45 seconds. The story is not finished yet. Because as the movement continues, and even now the kingdom of God is, is taking shape in our midst, and God is working, doing His thing, but the best is yet to come. Even during His own lifetime on earth, Jesus spoke of a day when He would return again. He said, the Son of Man will come back in an hour you least expect. One day... The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and Jesus will be among us again. The Bible tells that story too. It tells the story that is not finished yet. There's that future final chapter to the story when Jesus returns in glory and there will be a judgment of the living and the dead. We will all stand one day before God and, we, and there will be a reckoning. There will be an accounting for our lives. But it's not, you're not ultimately going to be judged based on how good or bad you are how religious or irreligious you are, you will ultimately be judged based on whether your name is in the Lamb's book of life. And that is whether you belong to Jesus, whether you're united to Him in His death and His resurrection, and you belong to Him as one of His children. And those who belong to Jesus will be ushered into the new heavens and the new earth. Beautiful vision the Bible gives us. Doesn't tell, tell us everything we wish we knew, but it tells us enough to know this will be an incredible paradise. You read Isaiah 65, 66, Revelation 21, 22. We get the picture. This will be a renewed and redeemed earth. Not Christians being zapped off to some other ethereal paradise, but the kingdom of God coming down in our midst right here. New heavens and new earth. This world redeemed, renewed, resurrected, brought to the destiny God always appointed for it, even back in the beginning. When you get to the end of the story, it really does start to sound a lot like the beginning of the story. Once again, there's a garden, except now it's a garden city, the new Jerusalem with the people of God inhabiting this in eternal pleasure and joy and freedom and blessing and delight as they behold the face of God and we see him as he is. And I can imagine on that day, and this is just me imagining, but I can imagine on that day God turning to Abraham because he'll be there and saying to him, Abraham, you remember those promises I made to you? All the way back in Genesis 12. You didn't know it was called Genesis 12 then because you didn't have the Bible. But it was Genesis 12. That through you, all nations of the earth would be blessed. Here it is, Abraham. Here it is. A people from every tribe, every nation, every people under heaven gathered around the throne, the great company of the redeemed, as the Bible describes it. Worshiping God before him for all eternity. That will be the final fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. And so let me finish with the, I think, the second to last verse in the Bible, Revelation 22, where the words of Jesus, Jesus himself says, yes, I am coming soon. And we say, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the story. Still got 30 seconds to spare. I could have gone into so much more detail. <laughs> so 
Here's, here, here's my challenge to you now that you've heard the story. I want to encourage you this year, not just to think about the story being a thing that happened uh, that doesn't affect you, a thing that happened out there somewhere. I want to encourage you to make this your story and to live deeply in this story and to allow your heart to be captured by it because this is our story. If we're people of faith, if we're people who belong to Jesus, this is our story and we need to know it. And I hope this year, as you're reading your Bible, and I hope you will read your Bible, and maybe you're digging around in Isaiah or you're somewhere buried in Galatians or you're trying to figure out what on earth Leviticus is talking about, that maybe you could lift up your eyes and just see the big story. And it might just help you piece the the little parts of the Bible that you're reading to something much bigger and much grander, that great big drama of salvation that God is working out and is still working out and is yet to bring to completion. I hope it'll help you and encourage you, even in your own Bible reading, and make some sense of the details. That's my challenge to you. All right, let's pray. So God, we want to thank you for this story. Yeah, Lord, it's just amazing to think. We think of the way that all these men and women of the past, men and women of your word, we think of Abraham and Sarah, Moses, Noah, Elijah, Daniel, Jesus, Mary, Paul, Peter, John. All of these now form the great cloud of witnesses who are surrounding us and looking down on us and now cheering us on as we step forward and take our place in the story. So Lord, I pray you would inspire us, stir our hearts this year to step into your story in a new way, to truly own this as our story in the face of so many other stories out there that will seek to make sense of our lives and our world. Help us to stand firm in your story, to live in this, to soak ourselves in it, and to live out that story every day as we become part of your ongoing mission in this world. We thank you that this is the one true story for the whole, for the whole world. And you are the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.